Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Once Upon a Time. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In the mid-1970s, our nation was recovering from losing the Vietnam War impeaching a president and dealing with skyrocketing fuel prices. Our nation's moral morale excuse me, was at a very low point, and hope was hard to find. It was during this dark season that a struggling, unknown actor wrote a movie script that he wanted to get turned into a Hollywood movie. He shopped the script around to various studios. However, just about every studio that he went to would only buy the script if they could choose who would star in the film and would have to be able to choose also who would direct and have control over editing the script. But this struggling actor refused such offers, believing that he should be the one who would play the lead. Eventually, he found a studio that was willing to take a chance on him, but they only gave him a budget of around $1 million, which was meager even in those days, and they only gave him 28 days to shoot the movie, which was also very meager in those days. The actor was Sylvester Stallone. The movie was none other than Rocky. Rocky is a down-and-out, uneducated, unknown boxer who lives in the slums of Philadelphia. And he owes money to a loan shark. It just so happens that Apollo Creed, who's played by Carl Weathers, and he happens to be the reigning heavyweight champion of the world, well, he's been planning to defend his heavyweight title on New Year's Day, 1976, in Philadelphia. But a problem develops, and that is the opponent that Creed was supposed to box against suddenly is no longer available. And so Creed decides to offer a local fighter a chance, and he chooses Rocky Balboa, based on his nickname, the Italian Stallion. Rocky's manager at the local gym named Mickey, who was played by Burgess, Burgess Meredith, uh, uh, offers to train him, and the movie builds momentum towards this fight that would take place on the first day of our nation's bicentennial year. It was a David versus Goliath matchup. Unorthodox training methods were shown in a montage as Rocky works with Mickey. As the match draws near, Rocky realizes he doesn't stand a chance at winning, and he even tells his sweetheart, Adrian, that. Instead, what he does is he focuses on trying to prove himself and sets the goal of just making it through the 15-round fight because no other fighter had done that against Apollo Creed. Well, Rocky achieves his goal, and he does survive the 15 rounds But Creed wins in a split decision. Regardless of Creed's 
nominal victory, the sportscasters go crazy, the audience wild in the whole city of Philadelphia because of Rocky's resilience. We love stories about people who overcome overwhelming odds with patience and persistence. I think we do that because those stories inspire us. They, uh, perhaps it's because they give us hope. Uh, or perhaps it's because we see ourselves in such stories. And we think, well, man, if Rocky can do it, maybe I can overcome the obstacles I'm facing. I think we all know in our heads that all good things in life come with patience and persistence, but I think also at the same time in our hearts, we, we would really prefer things just were easier. But Jesus knows this about us, which is one of the reasons he told the story we're going to be looking at today. We're continuing our series through the parables of Jesus called Once Upon a Time, If you haven't done so already, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 11 and to pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder. And if you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We've been learning throughout this series that a parable is an earthly story packed with a heavenly truth. Uh, The Lord tells stories that are called parables in the scriptures so that he can transform black and white truths into high-definition color. We uh, also see throughout Jesus' ministry that he tends to tell parables that address issues that we all struggle with. For example, he knows our tendency to give up too soon. And so he tells a story in Luke chapter 11 that intent, basically it reveals our big idea for today, which is this. The secrets to answered prayer are patience and persistence. The secrets to answered prayer are patience and persistence. The Lord knows that we are prone to give up too easily or too soon. And so he tells a timely and yet very encouraging parable in Luke chapter 11 to urge us to not give up in prayer. The the topic of prayer is filled with paradoxes that theologians, though, have struggled with for centuries. Prayer should be easy to do because it's simple, right? I mean, it's just talking to God. But we also know it's one of the hardest things to do. I mean, we all could probably share examples from our own lives of how we know we should pray more, but man, it's just so hard to actually do it. But it's also, it's easier to pray than it is to go to the gym. But some people get to the gym before they pray. Prayer is also paradoxical in that it's something nearly everyone admits they need to do more of, but even the saints who devoted their entire lives to prayer wish that they could have prayed more. In fact, there's, there's no one in heaven right now that's going, you know, as I look back on my life on earth, I think I prayed too much. I think I needed to rein it in a little bit. I was just kind of seeing too many answers to prayer. Maybe I was being selfish, praying so much. My family members, they weren't seeing as many answers. No, there's nobody that's doing that. They all wish they would have prayed more. 
So prayer is like, it's like humility. It's like once you feel you've gotten to, you've achieved it, it's like you've lost it. And so we've all struggled with prayer. We all feel guilty that we don't pray more, and we've all been disappointed when certain prayers go unanswered. And so Jesus told this parable that we're going to look at, called the parable of the midnight friend, so that we would not fear praying, not give up praying, or be impatient in our praying, because he knows that we're prone to do all three. As you look at your Bibles in Luke chapter 11, this passage breaks down neatly into three sections. The first section is comprised of verses 1 through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place when he finished. One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Here's the first point on your outline, and that is that Jesus provides a pattern for prayer. Obviously, this is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, but he gave it as a pattern, a model to follow. Prayer was an indispensable part of Jesus' ministry. It's something he did quite often. He knew the spiritual power in prayer. And he knew that he needed spiritual power to accomplish the spiritual work that the Father had given him. And so he connected with the Father often. This is probably why Jesus never taught the disciples how to preach. Did you know that? The only thing that the Gospels tell us that the disciples asked to learn is how to pray, and it's the only thing that the Gospels tell us Jesus taught them, and that is how to pray. They already knew how to preach, but what they needed to learn is how to pray so there would be spiritual power in their preaching. Now, contrary to popular belief, the Lord's Prayer that you see here in verses 2 through 4 was never meant to be a formulaic uh, prayer, or like a good luck charm, that if you just say this, uh, you know, like I remember in high school and in college, we prayed the Lord's Prayer before every football game. I mean, it was like, you do not go on the field unless you pray the Lord's Prayer or else the whole team might blow their knees out with ACL injuries or something like that. So so we had to pray it. But it was so monotonous. It was just this, everybody knew it, you say it, and it's, all right, let's go kill them, cuss word, cuss word, going to kill them, cuss word, cuss word, bang this locker and all that. And we go out and lose the game. And I always wondered, did the Lord's Prayer not work today? What's up with that? But it was intended instead to show the essential elements that we should have in our prayers. So, for example, if you look at your Bible, Father, hallowed be your name. That's in the ESV. Hallowed comes from the Greek word that means to regard as holy. It, it means simply that we want God's name and reputation to be revered and respected. Uh, next, it says, your kingdom come. It's a request for the Lord to quickly bring his eternal kingdom down here to earth. You might remember me mentioning a few weeks ago that the kingdom of God refers to the people of God, past and present, 
And it also refers to the place where God will establish his physical kingdom. It's talked about, that physical kingdom, in the book of Revelation. And it will be established in the future. Next, we see in verse 3, the request to give us each day our daily bread. It's simply an acknowledgement that we are completely dependent on the Lord and that we need him to provide for all of our needs. Then, forgive us our sins. Acknowledgement that unrepentant sin hinders our prayer and our relationship with the Lord, along with a request to restore fellowship with him. And then in verse 4, We ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, this is not declaring unconditional worldly forgiveness. Instead, it reinforces what Paul wrote in Colossians 3.13, which is forgive each other just as Christ forgave you. Well, how did Christ forgive you? You repented of your sin and asked him to forgive you. That's what Paul meant. And it's also what Jesus said in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. If your brother repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in one day, forgive him seven times. If you want to learn more about forgiving others and what the scriptures have to say about that, I'd encourage you to check out the message I preached just a couple of weeks ago called The Parable of the Unforgiving Servant. It's on our website and our podcast. Notice in verse 4, lead us not into temptation. Have you ever wondered what that means? Does God lead his people into temptation? No. Obviously, the Lord does not condone sin, and nor does he tempt us. He's not able to do that. This is simply a request to be delivered from situations that would cause us to sin. And for God's help to live a righteous life for Christ. Now, please don't miss the encouragement that I think is kind of lying underneath the surface of the text here. Notice how Jesus responds to the disciples' request, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he begins to teach, pray something like this. Notice that the Lord never, ever expects us to pray perfectly. And he's always willing to help us pray effectively. I can't tell you how many people I've met over the years in small groups who were so self-conscious about praying out loud, like instead of praying a prayer and getting a blessing, like they might get cursed if they prayed wrong or they didn't get the right combination of words. And really, all the Lord wants is your heart. Just be honest with him. And so the only way to learn how to pray is to pray. And you get better at it. So this means that no one who claims to know Christ can say, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to pray. You, you go ahead. Or I'm not comfortable praying out loud. Because you can learn. And you don't have to be perfect at it. You really can't mess prayer up. Did you, did you know that? You can't mess up. You don't get disqualified from praying. I mean, okay, there might be some extreme examples we could come up with, but that's not the point. The only way to learn how to pray is to pray. Now, there are three simple types of prayer that I wanted to mention just to kind of take the fear of praying away. I wanted to be very practical this morning on this topic. And so 
Here's three simple types of prayer, different ways to pray and incorporate prayer into your daily life. The first letter A is immersive prayer. This would be what we need to be doing, I think, four to five mornings a week in our devotion times. I've said it before, similar to working out at the gym, if you'll spend 30 minutes in prayer and in God's word five days a week, you will grow spiritually. You will grow. Uh, so, so immersive prayer, think of it as quality time with the Lord in which we abide and we, we listen and we allow our souls to marinate in the presence of God with our face in his word. A couple of other ways you can practice immersive prayer would be going on a prayer walk around your neighborhood and spending time praying for your neighbors and the community and or perhaps talking to the Lord on a long car ride where you just shut the phone off, you shut the radio off, and it's just you and the silence and the road noise, and you're talking to the Lord and you're listening for his spirit. I should mention that immersive prayer, like prayer walks and prayer drives, should be a supplement to your quality time that you've already given the Lord, not a substitute for it. I've had some men try to tell me they do their devotions. I remember when I lived back in the Chicago area, some men tried to tell me that they did their devotions on their drive to work and pray. And I'm like, well, okay, I understand you got to commute, but how are you able to give the Lord your complete attention when you're frustrated by rush hour traffic? You know, and you don't have the word open in front of you. You're going to be distracted. You're going to be tempted to turn the radio on and listen to talk radio and so on and so forth. That's, that's not ideal. It's not the best. Next, letter B, intercessory prayer. To intercede means to act or to speak for someone in need and to petition for them on their behalf. In this context, it would be uh, maybe a friend or a church member that mentions they're struggling with something. And I, I would encourage you, instead of promising to pray for them and knowing that we're all forgetful and we're all busy, pray for them right there. I do 10-second intercessory prayer. Like I might say, if it was uh, Brother John who is uh, uh, needing prayer for surgery this week, I might just put my hand on his shoulder and just say, Lord... I just want to thank you for, for John. Would you, would you just be with him? Would you give the doctor skillfulness and wisdom? Would you help his body to recover quickly? In Jesus' name, amen. We don't, we don't have to pray like monks to see the Lord do some great things. Sometimes a quick prayer with sincere faith can do miracles. Next, letter C, a, a third type of prayer, intermittent prayer. Or what Paul calls praying without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5. To be intermittent means to uh, recur constantly or spontaneously. It reminds me of that setting on the windshield wipers on our cars. I know we don't use those often here in a desert climate, but, but you know when you have them set on intermittent, you don't know when they're going to wipe next. It's just every few seconds. Well, in the same way... Uh, the Lord encourages us, encourages us, excuse me, in His Word to pray spontaneously to Him throughout the day. Maybe it's as you walk from your car into the office. Maybe it's um, while you're uh, getting ready in the morning. 
uh, for work or driving, just to talk to the Lord and to stay in touch with him. Lord, I'm going to this meeting. Please, would you help me to handle this meeting well? I want to honor you. Uh, Lord, I'm going to this doctor appointment. Please, would you help the doctor and give me, help me remember the things I need to tell the doctor? Just quick touches. Think of intermittent prayer as quantity times. Whereas immersive was quality, think of intermittent as quantity. Multiple short touches with the Lord throughout the day and the week. Both are important. Now, I look back at the text. Jesus further encourages us and the disciples by telling a story. And here's the parable. It's in verse 5. He says, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, and I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend. Yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Here's number two on your outline. Jesus encourages a persistence in prayer. He encourages a persistence in prayer. The first important detail we need to make sure we do not miss in this story is the word midnight. It tells us the time of day that this friend came, the host, who was in a bind, came and went to his friend, his neighbor, asking for help. It's not the middle of the day, but rather the middle of the night. Thus, the boldness of the host's request is accentuated by the level of inconvenience being imposed on the friend. Notice in verse 6, the friend replies, I have nothing to set before I'm sorry, the host says, I have nothing to set before him. Here's a little bit of cultural background to help you understand why this was important. In the first century Middle East, uh, culture... Let me say this again. I'm sorry, let me back up. In the first century Middle Eastern culture... It was a matter of honor to show hospitality to guests or traveling friends that came through your community. So much so that the hospitality shown by the host home was a reflection on the entire community. Because the visitor was a guest of both the individual home and the community of homeowners, any individual home owner could call on his neighbors for help. There was sort of this understood cultural obligation that we all need to chip in and help take care of guests. And we all, at one time or another, will be inconvenienced, caught off guard, where, oh, I didn't know my friend was coming to visit because, you know, they didn't have smartphones back then or any kind of technology. So, uh, caught off guard, I didn't know I needed to have extra bread made, but I happened to smell my neighbor two doors down was cooking today. I think I'm going to go ask my neighbor for some help. And so there was this cultural obligation 
to pitch in. Notice in verse 7, though, the neighbor who was sleeping says, Do not bother me. My children are with me in my bed. Most families in these days lived in one-room homes with a large door locked with a heavy bolt. Uh, the families would normally sleep together in the middle of the room on a mat. And so everybody was in the same place. It wasn't like the large homes that we have today where the kids are upstairs and you could easily have somebody come inside and maybe not wake them. Now, obviously, it would have been difficult for the friend to help the host out without waking his kids. And then maybe he had young kids. And he's thinking, like, I remember when Maya and I had our kids were younger we were just like, don't anybody call, don't anybody come near, don't make a peep, because the baby just went to sleep. And just a, a, a needle drop is going to wake the baby up again. And we're going to have to start the whole night-night routine all over. And so, so maybe, maybe this friend was thinking that too. Are you kidding? I'm not giving you bread. I just got the baby to sleep. Well, yet because of his impotence, verse 8, Impotence in the ESV uh, is the most important word in this parable. Some translations render it shameless audacity or persistence. I find that to be a little more a little boring, vanilla, shameless audacity. The word in the original Greek text actually describes a boldness or audacity that persists over time. Sort of a daring requesting over and over. Another way I think it could be translated is, because he had no shame, the friend will rise and give him what he needs. Like, the, the, the neighbor could have said that to the host. You have no shame, do you? Knocking on my door at midnight, when I just got the kids down. Because you have no shame, I guess I'll give you the bread that I baked today. Because I want to get rid of you. <laughs> now this parable is unique compared to others that Jesus told in that he provides a negative example in order to highlight the positive qualities of the Heavenly Father. The sleeping friend does not reflect God's heart. That's what Jesus is trying to convey to the disciples here. Although the friend is not accessible at night, the Lord is always accessible. Although the friend is reluctant to help, the Lord is always willing to help. Although the friend has limited resources, the Lord has unlimited resources. The parable of the midnight friend reminds me of a famous quote on prayer by the reformer Martin Luther. He once wrote, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance but laying hold of his willingness. I wonder how many people here today need to hear that. I wonder how many listening today or maybe online perceive God as being reluctant to help like the neighbor when instead Jesus is trying to convey in this passage, no, 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 no. The Father's willing to help. So, so what's this parable saying? Well, it's, I think it's saying that it, persistence is effective between man to man, 
how much more effective could it be between man and a willing God? So, here's our big idea again. It's coming up in the text. The secrets to answer prayer are patience and persistence. Oh, and here's the third section. It gets even better. Jesus gets even more specific. Look at the text again. Oh, you don't want to miss this. Verses 9 to 13. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here's number three on your outline, the third truth about prayer that Jesus teaches us, and that is that he offers promises on prayer. There are some promises here. Now, this passage parallels Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Matthew 5 through 7 is what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It was Jesus' longest message. Well, in Towards the end of that Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, there are very similar verses that we just read. Now, there are three promises that I see here. These are letter A, B, and C. The first is, the Lord promises you will have the Father's ear. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and you've humbled yourself before Him, and you go to Him in prayer... Jesus is saying, you will have the Father's ear. There's no waiting in line. There's no taking a number. You're not waiting on hold. You can have access to him anytime, place. Notice in verse 9, he says, ask, seek, and knock. Three verbs. I have them circled in my Bible. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, Knock. In the original text, each of these are in the Greek present tense to convey a repeated habit that flows out of a constant abiding. Asking, seeking, knocking, asking, seeking, knocking. It's repetitive and it flows out of a loving, constant abiding in the Lord. Now, Luke eleven nine 9 also repeats a theme that we see in the book of Psalms. The authors in the Psalms lifted their prayers up to the Lord and took comfort in the fact that even though they hadn't gotten an answer yet, what I find fascinating is that they were comforted by the fact they know they had been heard. So, for example, in Psalm 6, verse 9, David says, The Lord has heard my plea. He didn't get an answer yet. He just laid out his plea for the Lord to help him, to heal him, to take care of his enemies. And then towards the end of the psalm, the Lord has heard my plea. It's almost like David was saying to his enemies, I talked to my dad about you guys. You just wait. It's coming. 
He's, he's, going, he's working on some other things right now, but he's coming. It's like this confidence that a child would have. And then, and then in, in uh, chapter 18, Psalm 18, verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord, and but from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. No, no answer to the prayer, but there was comfort that the psalmist was taking from the fact, I know my father heard me. And then there's Psalm 40, a very popular psalm. Verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. So you will have the Father's ear. Next, letter B, you will receive an answer. Jesus says you can count on getting an answer. It may not be the answer you want. It may not be when you want but you will get an answer. It's there in verse 10. For everyone who asks, he says they receive. Everyone who seeks, they find. Everyone who knocks has a door opened. He then reiterates the responsiveness of the father to his children. Whereas verse 9 contains the invitation to pray, verse 10 contains what to expect when we bring our needs to him. Letter C, the third promise that's in this section, is that you will receive the Father's best. Again, not your best or my best, not what you would want, but his best. In these last three verses, Jesus uses the common lesser to greater argument to reveal the Father's motives. It's quite fascinating He's in essence saying, if you, in, if you human imperfect fathers know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more would the perfect heavenly father be able to give gifts to his children? That's why he, notice he drops a little compliment in there in verse 13. If you, who are evil, <laughs> he's talking to his disciples, what he's referring to is you, you have an inherited sin nature in you. You, you, you. Christmas time comes, you might give your kids a nice gift, but you also might yell at them on Christmas Day. You might be a little grumpy or something like that. Or, but you still, because you love your kids, you would get them a decent gift. Well, think about what the Heavenly Father can do. When he's not moody, he's not selfish, he has unlimited resources, so he's not constrained by a budget, <laughs> and, and, and he loves Christmas shopping. So Jesus is trying to dispel the myth that the Heavenly Father is malevolent, malicious, and mean-spirited, like this mean king who withholds blessings. Or maybe tricks his children. Oh, you, you want an egg? Oh, well, here, take a scorpion. Oh, Jesus is saying he doesn't do that. The Heavenly Father's not into trickery. Or another way to say it is, the Father gives better answers to prayer than we give gifts to our children. 
Notice in verse 13, again, he says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, this is, this is a tricky verse here. I don't know about you, but when I first read it this week, I had to slam on the brakes. Whoa! What is that doing there? And it's different than what Matthew says in Matthew 7.11. Matthew 7.11 says he gives good gifts to those who ask him. Well, this is a puzzling verse for commentators, and unfortunately, there are some in the charismatic movement that have used this verse to argue for a, a second baptism and other things like that. The first thing we need to remember is that this was before the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost to fill the believers, because Jesus was still on earth. He sent the Spirit as sort of a replacement for him, so that he could be in the form of the Holy Spirit with all believers at all time and all places. He could not do that in his human form as Jesus because he was confined by, by his, his body. The second thing we need to remember is that nowhere else in the scriptures are believers instructed to ask for the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13, and 14, and Romans 8, 9 tell us that all born-again believers get the Holy Spirit. They get all the Holy Spirit they will ever get and all the Holy Spirit they will ever need at the point of conversion. Third, thirdly, in Matthew's version of this, Matthew 7, 11, he references good gifts. Now, this verse, in verse 13, has puzzled many commentators, and interestingly, none of them agree on what it means. I was looking at five, six different commentaries last night, going, oh my goodness, this is a tough one. But here's what I think it means, most likely. I think, I think what Jesus was probably saying is that the Heavenly Father gives the greatest gifts, even the greatest blessing of the Holy Spirit. And I think he was saying this because the Spirit had not come yet. He was going to come. And the disciples had sort of hinted or asked for it in some of the other gospel texts. Now, we have to be careful, though, that when we build a theology on prayer, that we don't just use Luke 11, because that's how heresy takes place. Some people will take one passage and build an entire doctrine or belief system around it instead of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. So when we talk about prayer and answers to prayer, we have to look at the other passages in the Bible and what they say about prayer as well. We know, for example, that from experience, we all know this, that we don't always receive what we ask for. We don't always find what we're seeking. And there are doors we've asked the Lord to open before that didn't get open when we knocked and knocked and knocked. So we have to reconcile our experience with God's Word. And thankfully, God's Word has plenty to say. We let Scripture interpret Scripture by consulting the whole counsel of God's Word. So... I wanted to make sure I answered this question today. You see it, I think, on your handout, and it'll be on the keynote screen behind me. Why does God sometimes say no or not yet to our prayers? Because we've all experienced that. So here's a quick list of possibilities from the rest of God's word. The rest of God's word. Um, first of all, 
you may not get an answer to prayer because you may not know him. 2 Chronicles 7.14 is where the Lord says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. The point of the verse is that the Lord only answers prayers for his children. Well, how do you become one of his children? You need to have a personal relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. All the promises in the scriptures regarding prayer are directed towards those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. It is not a privilege that the Lord extends to the entire world. He does not answer prayers for people outside the family. In fact, I I think the only prayer he'll hear from an unbeliever is the prayer of repentance and faith and coming to Christ. In a sense, the Father is just like us. We won't answer a phone call or a text message from a stranger. At least I don't. I don't know about you. I, I get blocked. I don't know who you are. Why did I get this strange text? What? I, I'm not going to answer messages or, excuse me, answer calls or texts from people I don't know. Well, the Lord is the same way. Another reason you may get a no or a not yet is that you may have selfish motives. In James 4, 3, James says that sometimes we don't see answers to prayer because we ask with selfish motives instead of being committed to God's will and God's glory. When you pray, do you pray for the things that God wants? Or do your prayers focus on protecting and restoring your comfort? Uh, F.B. Meyer once wrote, We have an irresistible argument when we plead for God's glory in our prayers. Man, I, I remember when I read that for the first time, that changed, that was another season that changed how I prayed. I started thinking about what's going to give God glory and started asking for those things. Next, a third reason you may not get an answer to prayer or not yet, you may have unrepentant sin that you need to deal with. In Psalm 66, 18, it says that if we have known unconfessed sin, the Lord will not hear our prayers. This is why it's important to keep short accounts with the Lord. And I think it's important to begin our prayer time with self-examination and confession. If there's anything you need to own up to, Lord, sorry, I I said that to my spouse earlier today, I shouldn't have said that, or I, I got impatient, or I was irritable, or I was anxious, I wasn't trusting you, please forgive me, help me to do better, help me to grow. And then lead into some praises and then some requests. But out of the goodness of his loving heart, the Lord will withhold answers to prayer so that we deal with the more important issue of our sin. It's because he loves us. And he knows it's not good for us if he just keeps answering prayers for us and we don't deal with our sin. Here's another reason. The Lord may want something better for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, No eye has seen nor ear has heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around because we tend to think, and I do this too, 
we tend to think that what we want is what's best, and that there could not possibly be anything better than what we can think of. Take, for example, Amy Carmichael. In the early 20th century, Amy Carmichael ran an orphanage that rescued young girls from being Hindu temple prostitutes in India. However, years before Carmichael uh, made her mark for the kingdom here on earth, she prayed many times as a young girl that God would change the color of her eyes from brown to blue. Why? Because she was born and raised in Ireland, and most of her peers and family members had blue or green eyes. In fact, I just Googled this last night. Interesting little fact. A study was done just a couple of years ago that found just over half the population of Ireland has blue eyes now. And so, reflecting on her childhood years, many years later, towards the end of her life, Carmichael was writing, either in her, one of her books or her journals, she journaled a lot, about how she felt like an outcast because she had brown eyes, but all her relatives and friends had blue or green eyes. She was living in Ireland until her early 20s. Well, one night when she was a young girl, she did her bedtime prayers and she fervently asked the Lord to give her blue eyes. And she went to bed, according to Carmichael, so certain and filled with faith that without a shadow of a doubt, she would wake up the next morning with blue eyes. Well, the minute she woke up the next morning, the young Carmichael pushed a step stool in front of a chest of drawers in her room that had a mirror on it. She climbed up the step stool and she peered over the top of the chest of drawers and looked in the mirror and she saw she still had brown eyes. Years later, as a missionary in India, in order to gather needed information to rescue girls from temple prostitution, Carmichael stained her hands and arms with coffee and wore an Indian dress to pass as a native. One of the girls that she rescued said she knew why God had given the Irish-born rescuer brown eyes. And that is because if she had blue eyes, it would have ruined her disguise in her mission's work. Sometimes the Lord says, my no to you is better than your yes. Have you ever considered the possibility that the answer to your prayers that God has for you is better than the answer you want for yourself? Like, like Carmichael, for example, maybe he is getting you ready for something that you have no clue you're going to be doing down the road. And so he cannot answer your prayer because of what he's going to be having you do in the future. So you may want something better. Next, another reason you may get a no or a not yet, it may not be his will. 
It may not be his will. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 to 15, John says that if we ask anything according to his will, we can be confident that he'll not only hear us, but will give us what we've requested. But John is saying that all of our prayers are governed by or sifted through God's sovereign will. Next, it may not be his timing. In John chapter 11, Jesus was notified that his close friend Lazarus was dying. Instead of coming right away, Jesus waited three days until Lazarus had died. Jesus' delay caused Martha to question his goodness. She said, Lord, if you had been here, if you had gotten here sooner, Lord, my brother would not have died. Then, as most of you remember the story, the Lord resurrected Lazarus out of the tomb he had been buried in for four days. Now, before Lazarus' resurrection, Martha questioned Jesus' timing, but what's interesting in the text is that after the resurrection, she wasn't questioning anymore. I mean, there's nobody that's mentioned in the text, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded by John. Nobody went, um, um, excuse me, Jesus, you know, still, why, why weren't you here three days earlier? I mean, we appreciate the fireworks and everything with raising him from the dead, and we, we're glad, Jesus, you didn't, that you said Lazarus instead of just come out, because we're, we don't want to see everybody come out of their tombs. So we appreciate you narrowing it down to just one guy, but... Couldn't you have just showed up and healed him? No, no, no. Actually, what the text says is that the Pharisees are the only ones that complained. And when they saw Jesus raise Lazarus, the Pharisees went and used that as ammunition to try and arrest him. But everybody else was thankful they got to see something greater in the Lord's timing. The 19th century prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, often wrote about the agony of waiting on God for answers to prayer. His experience with waiting and eventually seeing the Lord provide answers no doubt allowed him to write these beautiful insights on prayer. This is a little longer quote than I usually do, but it actually was longer in its original form, and I turned it down. If you want me to send this to you, send me an email. I'll reply and send the PDF back to you. But here's what Spurgeon learned through very agonizing health issues, persecution, his wife having health problems, and waiting on the Lord. Spurgeon says, prayer sometimes lingers like a petitioner at the gate until the king comes with the blessings that he or she seeks. The Lord, when he has given great faith, has been known to test it by long delays. Beggars must not be choosers either as to time, place, or form. God's postdated checks will be punctually honored. We must not allow Satan to shake our confidence in God by pointing to our unanswered prayers. Unanswered petitions are not unheard. God keeps a file for our prayers. They are treasured in the king's archives. 
This is a registry in the court of heaven in which every prayer is recorded. Just as the Lord has a tear bottle in which the costly drops of your sacred grief are put away, he also has a book in which your holy groanings are numbered. The secrets to answered prayer are patience and persistence. Here's two applications. What do we do with this? How do we be doers of the word? The first that comes to mind is to pray boldly and persistently. A quick survey of David's various prayers in the Psalms reveal that he was very honest with the Lord. David's prayers remind us that the Lord is not some overly sensitive, powerless weakling who's easily overwhelmed by our bold requests. Or in another way to say it, he's a big boy, he can handle it. Instead, he welcomes our boldness because it demonstrates great faith. The Lord also welcomes our persistence. Why? Because that too not only demonstrates great faith, but it also brings us closer to him. And that's what he wants. Sometimes our persistence is necessary because our prayers need to win a spiritual battle. Because as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, there are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And prayer is one of the weapons we must use. And I say this especially if you're praying for somebody's salvation or maybe for resolution of a conflict. Often, there is warfare involved. Next, second application, prayer biblically and openly. Pray biblically and openly. Early in my ministry, a godly old prayer warrior, wise old prayer warrior, taught me, if you pray God's word, you almost always pray God's will. In other words, if we allow the scriptures to transform our desires into God's desires, we will begin to pray for things that God wants, and God will answer more prayer. It's sort of like getting layups as opposed to half-court shots in basketball. And more answers to prayer encourages us to pray more. And so this wise old prayer warrior taught me, pray God's word, and you'll pray for things God wants. So, for example, if I were praying for someone who is in need of a job, I would not only pray for the job, but also that the Lord would place that person strategically in a place where they could be a witness and share the gospel with unbelieving co-workers. Because I know that's what God would want. Now, when I say pray openly, I mean praying with open hands, like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will. Yielding our will to the Lord's is always better. So, pray Biblically and openly. Well, one of the most well-known saints in church history when it comes to prayer is a man named George Mueller. In the late 19th century, the kingdom of God was greatly impacted by this evangelist, orphanage director, and prayer warrior. The Lord powerfully used Mueller's prayer life to raise funds for starting several orphanages in Great Britain that led thousands, 
thousands of children to faith in Christ. It's believed that during his lifetime, his orphanages cared for over 10,000 children, and the 117 Christian schools he established provided Christian education for more than 120,000 students, in, all in the latter half of the 19th century. In 1844, Mueller began praying every day for five unbelieving friends that he had. He started praying fervently that they would come to faith in Christ. After 18 months, the first one repented of his sins and trusted in Christ alone for his salvation. He thanked the Lord, praised him, but then continued to pray. For the remaining four. Five years later, the second friend came to Christ. Again, Mueller thanked the Lord, continued to pray for the remaining three. Six more years passed before the third one got saved. And again, Mueller thanked the Lord and then continued praying for the remaining two until he passed away in 1898. For his last two unbelieving friends, This determined evangelist prayer warrior prayed for their salvation for 54 years. However, it was not until after Mueller's death that they both, the last two, came to faith in Christ. I'm convicted by George Mueller's patience and persistence. How about you? Because... His patience and persistence in prayer should inspire us to do what Jesus said in Luke 18.1, and that is, we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Why? Because the secrets to answered prayer are patience and persistence. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we first must thank you for the privilege of prayer. Among all the other things that you provided through your Son, Jesus Christ, and to those who have trusted in him for their salvation, Lord, you did not have to give us access to you in prayer. Forgiveness, peace with you, eternal life, and all the many things the New Testament talks about would have been more than enough. But Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much that we can come to you, that you invite us to come to lay our burdens at your feet and that you promise you will work all things together for good in them. Father, I just want to just ask you to help us become a church known for powerful prayer. Lord, just as the disciples asked Jesus, in Luke 11, 1, would you teach us how to pray? Would you teach our church, Lord, how to pray so that we can see mountains move and demonic strongholds come down and people get saved? Lord, would you show us if there's anything in our personal lives or anything corporately that might be hindering our prayers because we want to be used by you 
Lord, thank you so much for Jesus' encouragement in this story. Thank you that you are not the midnight friend. You are willing. You invite us. You have unlimited resources. And you welcome our requests. We can't thank you enough for that, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.